0: Well, thank you very much, Lisa. I'm delighted to be back in Spring Lake. We've had several programs that we've offered together, and it's always a pleasure to come back to your delightful community. I think we could, could we turn down the house uh, mic just a little bit, or it, it seems a little bit loud, like it's right on the edge of a starting to scream at us. Uh, if you have any problems with my first name, Gleaves, you're not alone. About a year ago, I was at a professional meeting, and it just so happened that my birthday coincided. With the meeting, and so my buddies wanted to surprise me, and what they ended up doing was they, they went to a cake maker, and they 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 took instructions, and they said, uh, you know, just uh, this is going to be, please, uh, birthday, so say congratulations, please. And so they're just about to pack up and leave, and the cake maker said, wait, before you leave, is Cleve's a man or a woman? He's Cleve's a man. So that night, I get to the party the surprise party for me, and they wheel out the cake, It's all nice and covered and everything. And i say, ta-da! And on the cake it said, congratulations, Gleaves is a man. <laughs> <laughs> people have had trouble with my name from day one, so anyway. I, as I say, am delighted to be here with you. And what I wanted to talk about is something that a lot of people have wondered about. It's this phenomenon, you know, Abraham Lincoln is so compelling a figure, and he has remained particularly compelling in 2009 for two reasons. First of all, it's his bicentennial of his birth, and so a lot of people have been curious about what it was about his life that always puts him in the top three of the presidential rankings. Why does he stay there? The second reason is our current president, Barack Obama, also looks back at Abraham Lincoln as an extremely compelling character. So what is it? What's the combination there. Well, I think some of the answer is quite apparent. If you, if you look at Lincoln's career, if you look at his impact on American history, here's a man, obviously, who goes through the American Iliad, the Civil War, and is able to, without firing the first shot, he was determined not to start the war, but was able to keep the Union together. He fought initially for Union, but then, of course, as the war went on, this is a tendency of American presidents, you'll see this If you study the presidents, you'll see that when they get into a war, if it's not a quick war, they have to find bigger and bigger reasons for all the bloodshed. And so as the war went on, Lincoln adopted not just union as a cause, but also the emancipation of the slaves. And then by pushing the 13th Amendment in 1864 and 1865, successfully, before he was assassinated, the union had this transcendent cause now to be fighting for freedom. So, Lincoln helped define the American experience in that way. This would be very compelling to subsequent presidents, including Barack Obama. Also, Lincoln did something critically important, and if we have time, we'll get to it later in the talk tonight. Lincoln was able to take one word, one word in the Declaration of Independence, and put a whole new gloss on that word, reinterpret that word, so that it would guide our understanding of freedom. And we'll get to to that word, the word is equal, but we'll get and we'll we'll get back to it, and we'll unpack its meaning in the way that Lincoln unpacked it. Many other reasons that Lincoln is compelling, but I think for people like Barack Obama and so many other Americans, ultimately it comes back. This man, I'm going to use a word that's become so overused now; it's it's almost uh, a cliche, but it's a good word. He has become iconic. The log cabin origins all the way to the White House. How does somebody do that? Now let's put this in perspective. And to put it in perspective, I want to use Booker T. Washington's famous quotation. Booker T. Washington pointed out the the measure of a human being, the measure of that person's career, is not just how many accolades they receive in life, but how many obstacles they overcome to get where they get in life. That's the true measure. A person's character. Now it's one thing if you start life out in the gentry class as George Washington did and rise from you know, being gentry and go to the White House, especially if you've gone through commanding the Continental Army and being unanimously selected to chair to, to preside over the Constitutional Convention. You start on a fairly high platform. You know, if you're Benjamin Harrison your grandfather, William Henry Harrison, was president. If you're John Quincy Adams, your father, John Adams, was president. If you're George W. Bush, your father, George H.W. Bush, was president. It's one thing to start out life toward the, on the road to the White House here. And this is not to denigrate the achievements of any of those individuals, but it's one thing to start here and go to the White House. It's quite another to start down here all the way, I mean all the way, at the bottom and rise to the White House. And I'll explain, we'll unpack this idea of being at the bottom here. I want to go over with you five obstacles that Abraham Lincoln had to overcome, even to position himself to run for the White House. The first obstacle was geographic isolation. You've got to take yourself back to the world of 1809, You know, prior to 1809, the energy, the power to civilization, the power that we use to live was essentially the same as the power that cavemen had used. The steam engine is the energy source that finally changes and makes possible a true industrial revolution. 1809, this is only a few years after George Washington's out of office, if you want to get someplace in 1809, you basically have to do it the way people did it 30,000 years before. You have to walk. Maybe you can take some kind of vessel that floats. Eventually you domesticate the horse. But that's about it. If you're in another part of the world, the camel. But you are isolated. If you were in Kentucky, you are a long way away. When you're in that frontier outpost, from any of the centers of power, much less the White House. So Abraham Lincoln has to overcome this sense of geographic isolation. He does it very smartly in the course of his career. He wants to read the law. He becomes a lawyer. He doesn't go to a lawsuit. There weren't law schools in those days. You read with lawyers. He wants to become a lawyer. He moves then to Springfield, the capital. He helped, in fact, he got into the state legislature and he helped move the capital to Springfield. So it would be close to his home. So he moves to a place where he will be dealing with the coinage, the currency of power, communicating with Washington, DC. He's very smart in overcoming his isolation because what does he do as a lawyer? He becomes a circuit writer in Illinois's largest geographic circuit. So he's out and about going all over the state to hear cases. We'll come back to that in a bit. And finally, He goes about the the state in pursuit of political office. First, the seven locales to do the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Gets him known all over Illinois. But then he starts going on the lecture tours. He even goes to Bleeding Kansas in the 1850s. He goes to Bleeding Kansas. How many many of you knew that Lincoln had gone to Kansas? Hardly anybody I talked to knows that. He goes to Kansas. He takes speaking tours up to New York and to New England and gives his famous, some of his famous speeches in his campaign uh, outside of Illinois. So he overcomes geographic isolation. He's helped, of course, by the fact that there are railroads now. So he has to overcome this wilderness experience out here in Kentucky and Indiana and then in Illinois. The second obstacle he has to overcome is the fact that he has no formal schooling. He doesn't have the educational credential that we expect of the most basic citizen nowadays. Abraham Lincoln said that his schooling amounted to one year at an ABC school where he learned to reckon, read, write, and reckon to the rule of three. That was about it. You had to go to just enough schools so you could protect yourself in the marketplace when you're making contracts with people. They just knew how to sort of do basic math.
1: That was it.
0: And yet, and yet, Lincoln became one of the most educated, the least schooled, but the most educated president in U.S. history, arguably by voracious reading of the Bible, Aesop's fables, Shakespeare, Burns' poetry. There's a man who taught himself the law Reading books, He knew the Northwest Ordinance, for example, since he was in Illinois. He knew Magna Carta. He knew all the organic law in his heritage. This is a man who read voraciously. His words, and this is the only president about whom you can say this. His words become canonical. They're in the Norton Anthology of English literature, for Pete's sake. No other president has words in the Norton Anthology of English Literature, he ranks with the very greatest writers of English prose. Churchill would be an analogy with another person who was a statesman and had a career in politics to do this. So yes, no formal schooling, but a brilliant education. He overcame the lack of credentials. This is through sheer brilliance of study. It's nasty. The third thing that Abraham Lincoln had to overcome was a lack of political connections and family connections that would uh, inherited wealth to get him on the road to the White House. When you're talking about that geographic isolation, it's compounded by just a hard, scrabble existence that his family went through. When Samuel Lincoln comes to the United States, uh, the future United States, British colony in those days, in 1637, comes to Massachusetts. There's great hope for the Lincoln family. They're going to amass a considerable amount of land. They're going to spread out the Lincolns. They're going to move around. But I'm telling you, the line of descent to Abraham Lincoln was a tough one because when um, when Abraham Lincoln's grandfather, who was named Abraham, was killed by an Indian in an Indian ambush on his, on his land, it set back the family tremendously because Abraham Lincoln's father, the son of the man who was killed, did not enjoy uh, legal protection to inherit uh, the portion of the land that would have come to him. His older brother, Mordecai, under the laws of primogeniture, got all of the land. So this child of the grandfather, Abraham Lincoln, had to start all over again, and this is Thomas Lincoln we're talking about. He had to start as though he were Samuel Lincoln back in 1637, just starting out in the new world. Thomas Lincoln does learn some skills as a cabinet maker, but he's going to have tough luck after tough luck story on the frontier. There in Kentucky, uh, the the land does not fall under the Jeffersonian township and range system. He chooses land. Talk about tough luck. He chooses land that's going to be contested by other property owners. There's not clear title to the land. Lincoln's father has to move. Uh, it is said that he has, uh, at his at peak of his wealth, he has two horses and maybe a piece of land that he can uh, have title to, clear title to. That's the tough luck that uh, Lincoln's family was going through. So Abraham Lincoln truly grows up in, in a poverty that we're going to come to in a, back to in a few minutes. But it's, there, there's nothing in the family to pass on to him. There are no political connections here. If you were to take a snapshot or just a rendering of young Abraham Lincoln saying about 1812, 1813, 1814, this kid way out on the frontier with no family connections to power, no inheritable wealth, Geographic isolation, no education in his future, no formal schooling whatsoever. And you'd say, that kid's gonna go to the White House. People look at you as though you're touched, daft. You're kidding me, no way. So Lincoln is going to have to overcome this. And how does he do it? He does it through dent of hard work the way so many generations of Americans have done it. He has to go out and he has to hustle. He works hard to learn the law. It doesn't hurt that he marries a woman who's extremely ambitious for him. Mary Todd is somebody who wants Lincoln to go far. If Mary, Todd, if Mary Todd had lived after women became more powerful in our society, she would be something like Hillary Clinton. No kidding. That'd be the analogy. Mary Todd would have wanted to run for president. She was very ambitious. Her family had connections with Henry Clay. Clay was a virtual mentor. His ideas in the American system to Abraham Lincoln. So Mary Todd wanted her husband to go places. So he married very strategically in that sense. Difficult, though the marriage was. Maybe we'll have time to talk about that. So he's got this, this, uh, this handicap of Of not having the uh, credentials, the the political connections, really. But those are some of the sort of the structural things around him that would influence his life. Abraham Lincoln had to overcome something else. A couple of more things. Fourth and fifth thing that I want to tell you about were more about his person. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln had to overcome the fact that he knew he was ugly. He knew he was an ugly man. He did not have a comely face. He did not have the kind of appearance that people just were naturally attracted to. He wasn't like a George Washington who developed those thighs from writing. Have you ever noticed how Washington stands there in those poses and with his his right leg sticking out? You know why he does that? Men in those days were proud of their thighs. <laughs> Yes, because it showed they were great horsemen. So he's standing there like this, you know, very, very proud. What's the thigh he wants you to look at. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln was tall. He was awkward, gawky. His ears stuck out. think People think later that he had Marfan syndrome, which would cause some of the physical appearance that he has. Abraham Lincoln had to overcome this handicap, and he did it in two ways, basically. Besides being a really smart guy who was able to advance professionally, he had a real way with stories and humor. Those were the two things that he used to attract people to him. He realized, isn't this what we tell kids, if we're teachers, say? I mean, we know that the kids who are not the beautiful people Sometimes have to develop something else from inside, and they develop that that great natural ability to relate to people. You know, it's like you know what my mama taught me. You know, the two kinds of people come in the room. First kind of person comes into the room, and they you know they're feeling real cocky, they're very self-centered. And they, Here I am, you know, coming into the room. You can't wait to get to know me. And there's the second kind of person comes into a room. They come into a room. I look at you and they say, there you are, and you, and you, and you, and I can't wait to get to know you. It's the second kind of person. That's Abraham Lincoln. He wants to reach out to people. There's an instinct, a very strong social instinct in him, and he, he wants to entertain them and please them through his stories. He very much wants to show them... Uh, I think sort of the ironies of the human condition. This is why he had such a great eye, even from an early age. Now, he's, he's a little bit sacrilegious. I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but Abraham Lincoln is unusual, and his parents were very, very religious folks. Abraham Lincoln, for whatever reason, seems to have rejected religion from a very early age and only becomes more religious as time goes on. I would say he starts out as probably something between an atheist and an agnostic as a teenager, and then he becomes an agnostic, then he becomes a general theist, it's only by the very end of his life, say the last five to six, seven years of his life, where he really, you know, he's not a church-going man ever, but he really starts to grapple with what the divine is, but when he's a kid and his parents drag him off to church, he comes back. And he will gather all the kids around him. One of the things he did, remember, he's developing his personality. One of the things he's doing is he, he's inviting kids then to listen to him, and he will, he will summarize the sermon that he just heard. Word for word, apparently he had a prodigious memory. But also, he would weave in sarcasm, his little comments like, yeah, that's right, you know, and do all kinds of things to get the audience, in this case, his chums, to laugh, to mock, and to go along with him. This was Abraham Lincoln's youth. So he learned early on that he had this ability as a raconteur to do wonderful things with the human word, the voice. What was his voice like? It was not a nice, stentorian, deep voice. It was rather high-pitched. But that high pitch actually made it carry. This is how he could learn to address people from great distance. It was said that uh, Lincoln overcame uh, sort of the, the fatigue that travelers felt in the circuit. Remember I told you a few minutes ago how he'd ride the circuit? Lincoln was the equivalent of a rock star as a lawyer. He and Judge Davis would go around Illinois, and you know, they'd hear their cases, <laughs> and Lincoln would argue. But what was happening is that at night, they would you know, retire to the tavern and they would uh, tell stories to each other. Well, Lincoln always told the greatest stories, the funniest stories, and he became this rock star as he went around the state of Illinois entertaining people. And of course, the circuit riders in those days, he had three months in the spring and three months in the fall. So people's appetites for his stories would be whetted in that three or four month absence before uh, Lincoln would come back and tell his stories. He also knew I mean, again, remember where I'm going with this. He had been, you know, uh, he knew that he was not a pleasant person to look at, so he knew that to develop as a courtroom lawyer, as a trial lawyer, that he had to be a very skilled uh, rhetorician. And Lincoln would hang around courthouses, he would learn how the good lawyers won their cases, and he saw confirmed exactly where his skill set lay. He saw that people who made the best argument told the best story often won the arguments. Now lawyers have gone back and looked at the hundreds and hundreds of cases that Lincoln argued. And lawyers, looking back at them say it's not always necessarily on the merits of the the law, but a case at hand that Lincoln won on. He was able to persuade juries, again, because of the stories he could tell. And I think the people like Michael Burlingame or David Herbert Donald or Ronald White, great biographers of Lincoln, Carl Sandburg, who looked at Lincoln's life, has seen that this magnificent storytelling ability, probably has its roots in the fact that he had to reach out to people in some way because he was not naturally going to be approached. So that was something else he overcame quite successfully, and partly his weaknesses are tremendous strength over uh, 54, 55 years. The last obstacle, the fifth obstacle I want to talk about is also internal. Poverty. And most of you are thinking, wait a second, poverty is an external condition. Yes, it's true. Lincoln had a great deal of physical poverty around him, and it was it was terrible hardship for him to to live on the frontier. Remember, this is an environment in which we have accounts of this from the Lincoln household. You know, you and your dad are out and you plant the seeds. The rain comes along and washes all the seeds away. This actually happened to the Lincoln family. Ergo, no crops. You're not going to have a harvest. This is life and death on the frontier. We also know, I mean, obviously from the primitive medical conditions out on the frontier, that if you make a mistake, you die. You can't just call 911. You can't just get in a car or get on a horse and go to a hospital. This kind of poverty obviously is in the exterior, surrounding Lincoln. He lived in a cabin that was Uh, about the size of this section of chairs. 16 by 20 at most. 16 by 20 at most. You look at the cabins his father built. About the size of your living room. That's where all the family activities went on. But I think that the kind of poverty that Abraham Lincoln really had to contend with was emotional poverty. And this thought is not original with me. This comes from Michael Burlingame, who goes, into great depth, and other people have written about Lincoln's depression. So, this is that second interior, you know, the, sort of the, having to deal with the ugliness of your appearance, and then having to deal with the temperament that uh, I think today we call manic depressive. It was exacerbated in those days because Lincoln lost so many key people in his life to death. His mother dies when he's just nine years old, and she dies a horrible death. It's something called the milk sickness. Cows go out, they eat noxious weed, they consume the milk, and you die a week later. And it's an ugly death. Doctors have described it. Your eyes roll into the back of your head, your limbs swell, your tongue turns black, you become delirious. You don't recognize the people around you. You sweat in the cold of winter. You feel like an ice cube in the heat of summer. It's a terrible, agonizing death. This poor nine-year-old boy is watching his very mother expire. this painful death. And then, and then, after she dies, he has to help his dad bake a casket. the casket. mortise and tin joints with which he has made, thinking about who's going to be there. His mother, whose touch he could count on will now be cold touch to the wood. He loses his mom. He's very close to his sister. But when he's 19 years old, his sister, who's a couple years older, she marries. She dies in childbirth, so he loses a beloved sister. The family loses a baby boy shortly after birth. Um, so these are all losses. You would think in this atmosphere of loss that somebody in the nuclear family would be left who would be close to Abraham Lincoln. Who was left? Dad. Was it a good relationship? Absolutely not. It was a horrible relationship. Thomas Lincoln is somebody we would today call cracker. He was a very simple man who liked to tell some stories, but he wasn't nearly as smart as his son. He basically was lazy, was not ambitious to improve really the lot of his family as much as the neighbors. In fact, one of the neighbors later said after Abraham Lincoln became famous that the Lincoln family back on the frontier was a fine specimen of white trash. That's Thomas Lincoln's family. And Thomas Lincoln, I think, carried some of the resentment and took it out on his son. He wanted his son to help him succeed as a farmer. Abraham Lincoln didn't want to have anything to do with farming. Abraham Lincoln wanted to choose a different life. Remember, Henry Clay is his ideal. Henry Clay wants to, to pursue, he wants America to develop industrial. of um, you who heard my talk on Alexander Hamilton a couple of years ago. You see the direct line of descent: Alexander Hamilton, Henry Clay, Abraham Lincoln. You make it in commerce or in the legal profession or you know, any one of the learned professions. You don't go and get your hands dirty and farm. And as soon as Abraham Lincoln has a chance to get out of his father's household, he does so. Takes a raft of goods down to New Orleans to try to sell, and he ends up in a, working in a store. He makes a statement. Why? because he didn't fit in. Any child who is not quite fit into the family knows the pain that Abraham Lincoln would have gone through. Let's give some examples. Abraham Lincoln had a tender heart. He did not like to hunt. This is a man on the frontier. uh, Do you know anybody on the frontier who wouldn't like to hunt? You know, boy? Oh, when he was seven years old, he thought he should man up. He thought he should hunt. So he takes a rifle, a long rifle, and when there are turkeys out in the yard in front of the little cabin, he shoots one of them and he feels horrible for killing the bird. Terrible. That shotgun back there in that case, he wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with it. And he resolved never to kill large game again after that. He had a tender heart. Well, his father didn't like that at all. If you're gonna be out on the frontier here, if you're gonna make it, You've got to learn to shoot a gun. You've got to learn to shoot deer. And, you know, I don't want this tender heart business. Lincoln did not, young Abraham did not fit in. He didn't like to fight. He fought if he had to. And on the frontier, a young man developing, his man into blooming into manhood, had to learn to take care of himself. But every time somebody thought that he was not quite man enough to fight, he'd whip them. It was because he had the real long arms. So, you know, he could just kind of keep him at bay, and he, can, he didn't want to hurt anybody, though. This was a man who didn't fit in. He wasn't what you would call for the macho man's man. He wasn't interested in that. And his father took it out on him. Here's also a boy. Again, I emphasize, this is a boy on the frontier. This is where books are rare. And what did this boy want to do? He wanted to pick up books, and he wanted to read him. He did not fit in. And his father would beat him if he caught Abraham Lincoln reading, his son reading, when he should have been out doing chores. And every chance Abraham Lincoln had to sort of shirk the chores for a while and read Aesop's fables or Shakespeare or the Bible, he'd do it. Tough, tough childhood. He loses the people who love him openly and are affectionate to him. And he keeps the man who doesn't like him as a person. Now, it's true. I want to to modify this just a little bit. Thomas Lincoln marries a wonderful woman, Sarah Bush Johnson, who becomes the stepmom. And she she is a savior for him. She brings over her children into the cabin. But more importantly, she recognizes who Lincoln is as a person and nurtures him in his desire to learn. And she had such interesting observations about him. She said, you know, Lincoln, she said, young Abraham seems slow to a lot of people when you first meet him. He hasn't started telling his stories yet. But what he's really doing is he's listening to what you're saying or he's reading and he's processing things in his own way and he will synthesize what he's learning in his own way. And he makes it his own. And that's how he becomes a great lawyer through study and absorbing the facts, the insights he's getting and making them his own. And this is why he became such a fierce debater in the Lincoln Douglas debates. Lincoln had many, many obstacles to overcome. Uh, One little story about the the ugliness, for example, since we're still on the interior here when he was debating Stephen Douglas, Douglas accused him of being two-faced. And Lincoln said to him, he said, now, Senator Douglas, if I really had two faces, why on earth would I ever put on this one? Lincoln um, experienced a a very difficult love life too. I mean, once he's out of the house, um, there are a lot of problems there too. The love of his life and Rutledge dies also. And there's apparently this scene, you read about now, there's nothing really written about it directly, but there's this scene where he and Anne essentially say goodbye to each other when she is just about to die. He was so distraught over his, her death that he threw, he would throw himself on her grave when it rained because he couldn't stand the thought of rainwater going down into her gravesite. This was a man who was considered so depressed by his friends, friends like Joshua Speed, they took his knives away from him for fear that he would hurt himself. This was a man who was so depressed that when the Speed household took Abraham Lincoln in, Abraham Lincoln was flat on his back, depressed. Could not, could not get out of bed. I mean, that's how depressed he was. Again, again, If you had taken a snapshot of this young man, this is you had, say, when he was a nine-year-old boy and when his mom died. Now you take a snapshot of him even as a 25-year-old. This guy, who's so depressed, President of the United States someday? No way. No way. Lincoln had to overcome the ugliness, the depression. And it's been a source of a lot of conjecture. What was it that turned in him? So he was able to do that and become the person who, was, who mastered his interior life sufficient, who's was disciplined enough to do the things he had to do to be president of the United States. It's a remarkable journey for somebody who, again, starts out way down here, way down here. Uh, we don't have time to go through it, but if you look also at Lincoln's years, actually, in the White House, and you look at the criticism, I would urge you to go out to this board out here that's by the Gilder Lehrman Institute and go look at some of the political cartoons and look at the scurrilous, the vicious political cartoons that were aimed at Lincoln, dehumanizing. They called him ugly. They'd say he had a coconut head with the wiry hair and you know there was a suggestion that maybe he was African and. You know, all kinds of really nasty things attacking this very person. They were really vicious against Mary. They not only accused her of being a sudden sympathizer, but you know, she liked to put a flower to her head, up here in her hair. They'd say, oh, she's very dumpy. And she wears the of her dresses is way too low. And why on earth does she wear a flower bed on top of her head? That's how vicious. These are cartoons. These are the things that are actually out there. We think elections are nasty today. No way. No way. Our elections today cannot compare to what they were like back in 1864, 1860. Or even if you go back to the founders, you go back to say 1792, 1796, 1800. Vicious, vicious elections. This is when politics really was blood sport. We had, remember, the Vice President of the United States go out and shoot and murder the former Treasury Secretary. Politics was so much more interesting than that. What would a 24-7 news cycle do that without Oh, excuse me. Yeah, Cheney did go out and shoot.
1: <laughs> Forgot about that.
0: Anyway. These were all the obstacles Lincoln overcame to get into the White House, and then he had to have nerves of steel to stay in the White House. And you probably know the stories. Little Willie, 11 year old little Willie, died when he was in the White House. He died on a Thursday. It was February 20th, 1862. That was a Thursday that year. Every Thursday until the end of his life, three years later, Lincoln would take a half hour and he would. Go into a little Willie's room and just mourn and weep. No, he would sob. Weeping is just tears, sobbing your shoulders. Sob. Very, very tragic life. And yet he had this inner strength to overcome all of those obstacles to become consistently one of the three greatest presidents in U.S. history. Consistently right. Now, I promised at the very beginning of this talk that we would also talk about the Gettysburg Address. Let me just go over it very, very quickly with you because, well, we could do this one of two ways, Lisa. Do you want me to open it up to Q&A now and make this optional, or do you want me just to go through the Gettysburg Address? It's up to you. Uh, let's do the
1: Gettysburg Address.
0: Okay. Sir, pass that along. Pass that along, please. Thank you. No, it's all a piece, isn't it? Abraham Lincoln overcomes all of these obstacles to get where he goes. He rises higher than maybe any other human being thus far to become president of the United States. When you consider all of those obstacles, the geographic isolation, the lack of formal schooling and the educational credentials, you look at the, the lack of a political influence, no inherited wealth. You look at his ugliness. You look at his internal struggles, his oppression. He rises higher to get to the White House than anybody else. What is the message there? The message is, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Abraham Lincoln was very aware of of the challenges he had to overcome. Now, this is what makes the Gettysburg Address such an interesting document. I just want to go over a few things in the address with you, because you're going to see how it fits together with Lincoln's very biography. If you look at the Gettysburg Address, he begins it, for a guy who wasn't religious most of his life, he begins it four score and seven years ago. Now, remember, this is 1863. What had just happened, Robert E. Lee and the Confederates had come up for one last desperate effort to invade the North and threaten Washington City, which Is what they call it, then Washington City from the North. All they had to do was the same thing that George Washington had done in the Revolutionary War, and that's just get the North, which you couldn't beat on the battlefield ultimately, but just to say, enough already. It's okay for the South to secede, that that was Washington's tactic. Washington knew he could not defeat the British militarily in the end, ultimately. The British had been absolutely determined militarily, and the people were behind the war. That war would have gone until the United States would have run out of resources. Robert E. Lee had the same attitude that George Washington had. Just get up to the North, really scare the North, and the North will say no. That's what just happened, because North succeeded in turning Lee back. There are all these bodies lying around. That battle of Gettysburg took place on July first, second, third, eighteen sixty-three. This address is going to be November nineteenth. The bodies have been hastily buried. It was so hasty. I hope everybody's digested your dinner. But I use this trick with my undergraduates to keep their attention. But you know, the body swells and it's very unpleasant, and there were limbs sticking up out of the dirt. It was a very grotesque thing. It was a horrible thing. There needed to be a proper cemetery for these soldiers who had died. So money was raised. Pennsylvania was going to take care of this. The president was invited to come in, and just give a very short address. So he understands that this is an address that's not supposed to be the keynote speech. Either. That was going to go to Edward Everett, Harvard University, who was the finest orator in the land. Edward Everett was going to give a two-hour oration in which he's describing the battles, this word picture in which he's talking about the smoke, the din, the noise, the the clamor, the agony, the death struggles, the triumph. All these word pictures, that's what Edward Everett does. Lincoln knows he doesn't want to compete. Now you understand why the Gettysburg Address doesn't have the one reference, very brief reference, to the battle itself. So Abraham Lincoln's gonna ask his audience to take a step back, take a step back from the immediacy of the battle that you just heard so beautifully rendered by Everett Everett. Well, what a step back. Abraham Lincoln is going to put this battle in world historical perspective. And to do it, he sets a tone right away, or score at seven years ago, which sounds as if it comes out of what book? A Bible. And of course, four score and seven years from 1863 refers to, refers to 76. 1776, which was the year that what was composed? The Declaration of Independence. Now this is very interesting for Lincoln scholars who go back and study all of Lincoln's speeches. Earlier in his career in the 1840s and 1850, when Lincoln had been in Congress in the 1840s and in the 1850s when he comes back after Kansas Nebraska, Active. He starts to give talks. He, Lincoln consistently dates the founding of the country from the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Lincoln's own interpretation now of our country has changed four score and seven years. He's now gonna go back to the Declaration of Independence and I'll show you why. Look at the language. So now that he's set this up, first words, Everybody's thinking Bible, everybody's thinking world historical event. Then he says, our fathers, ancient Israel, was very clenched, tribes, extended families. We are the American family. We are the American family. Again, you can already see sort of an anticipation of the conciliation that he will extend in the second inaugural address. We are family." our fathers, all of our fathers, for the North and the South. In fact, there was more Southern fathers involved, because Virginia was the largest state then. Brought forth on this continent a new nation. Now, look at the words carefully. Second line, the word "conceived." Brought forth. This is the analogy of a human being's life. First of all, four score and seven. How long is the biblical lifespan in the Old Testament? Typical?
1: How much? Close. I believe it was 70 years, and if you're lucky, it was 80. Oh, you are good. That's
0: exactly right. It was three score and ten. Three score and ten was the typical biblical span. And somewhere in the Old Testament it says, and if you're really fortunate, if you're really blessed, it's four score. Four score and seven. The analogy holds with the human lifespan. Now look at the words he chooses to describe the lifespan of this country. As a father, as a father, fathers, it is conceived. Human beings are conceived. It is brought forth. In other words, it is conceived. Born. It's conceived, it is born. It is dedicated. What happens to the Jewish child on the eighth day? Circumcision. <laughs> what if it's a girl? <laughs> it's every audience says so this. I'm, I'm just pulling your leg. Every, everybody's thinking circumcision. What actually happens, of course, the dedication in the temple is that the baby is presented, the priest dedicated to God. For the Israelites, and the, the, the male child, the boy child, was circumcised at that time. So already, Lincoln, who had been so irreligious earlier in his life, is using very biblical language and very biblical allusions. Conception, brought forth birth, and now dedication, as though to a temple, as though there is a higher purpose here, And then what happens as a human being, if you've already been dedicated to God, what happens as you go through life? That's the test. When you become, say, by the age of seven, you can use your reason, and this is the traditional, from age seven on, from age seven on, you're expected to be a moral agent. You're supposed to exercise your morality so that you choose right and reject wrong. But none of us quite succeeds in doing that, do we? We all struggle, we have a great test. You see the analogy, the United States is being tested. We have the opportunity, just like the individual human person, the opportunity to choose right and reject wrong. Lincoln has asked us to step back on this world historical stage. This business about slavery is serious business. We are a republic, we've been tested. How are we going to get on the other side of this test? It'll impact all mankind. That's what Lincoln is saying. Now, what word? What significant word? Not an article like "the" or indefinite article like "a" or M, What
1: significant word recurs in the speech more than the other? Should you look at it? Oh, I don't know. What's significant word here that he time eight times.
0: Okay, and this is almost as much as that. It's a multi-syllable word. Oui.
1: It's a multi-syllable word.
0: Did you say dedicate? Yes. Dedicate or some form of it. Now, dedication is going to be very important for three reasons. First of all, it's an allusion back to the old Hebrew practice, the Israel practice of dedicating a child, dedicating a young nation. It's... Uh, it's significant on the battlefield because it, it's a standard trope. It's part of a battlefield ceremony to dedicate the ground, consecrate the ground where the dead who've given their lives will now be buried. But Lincoln turns this, and he now challenges us by using dedicated in yet a different way. And he says, enough now of, of fun historical analogies, enough now of talking about the, the dead. There's another sense in which we dedicate. What are you, Americans, going to dedicate this country to in, by your lives, by your very beliefs? How are you going to dedicate this very nation that you have staked our fortunes on? And he suggests the answer. He suggests that in the third line here, it says, I'll just read it, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. You know, there have been many revolutions in America, really. The Industrial Revolution, the American Revolution, the Commercial Revolution. This was a revolution in interpreting the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence had never been quite interpreted this way with the emphasis now on viewing liberty in terms of equality with the force that Lincoln will bring to it. Liberty in terms of equality. And he's saying here, Americans have a chance now to throw off the shackles of slavery, to throw off all forms of inequality that we possibly can. We're not talking about... I'm getting rid of, of economic inequality here. But we are talking about sort of the essential, seeing humans in their essential equality as people who are created with a common bond by their humanity, by virtue of their humanity. This is what Lincoln wants to emphasize here. Dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Again, let's take a step back from the guns, the smoke, the din of battle, and let's look at this world historical perspective. And he, he's telling you, well, this has been a world of monarchies. Monarchies from the very beginning, we've had a few exceptions. We had some of the Greeks who had their democracy in Athens. We had republics in Carthage and Rome and in latter days in, in Venice. We had the Italian communes that were these little republics in the late Middle Ages. But for the most part, we have lived in world history in a world of monarchs we are a republic. In a monarchy, the king is the law. This is Louis XIV said. L'état c'est moi. I am the law. I am the state. L'état c'est moi. No. Here, what is king is the rule of law. And it's idea that's important. We're all equal before the law. We're all equal in our creation, our essential creation, by whoever that creator is. However you define it, I don't go to church, but however you do it, is what Lincoln is saying to Americans, the American community. Now let's tie this up. Let's go back to Barack Obama, let's go back to presidents who have been inspired by Lincoln. And you see the organic wholeness here, uh, the speech, with the obstacles. If Lincoln could do it, anybody could do it. But there had to be a certain environment in which to rise. Abraham Lincoln in medieval Germany, or medieval Italy, or early modern Romania, would not have become the Abraham Lincoln we know. He was very acutely aware of that fact. This is why Lincoln truly deserves this iconic understanding of how he rose, how he achieved so much, why there is hope for any American. Because we are dedicated to this proposition, that you are equal under the law before your Creator, however you define the Jewish tradition or the Christian tradition or any theistic tradition that you define it. We are essentially equal. And this country is going to dedicate itself to that so that your full potential can rise as far as you want it to go. And that's why we celebrate Abraham Lincoln. That's why he's a man for all seasons. He's a man for the ages. Forever in American history. This is not a man who's Influence over our lives will fade. Thanks. Well, did I provoke any
1: questions? Quarrels. Take issue with me. Yes.
0: That's a great question on Nancy Hanks. And um, he thought that his mother was actually probably an illegitimate child, whose father would have been a Virginia aristocrat. And he thought that his nobility came not from his father. He didn't think much of, as I've shown. He thought the inner nobility he had actually came through the Virginia gentry. Uh, maybe somebody who knew George Washington, who knows? Uh, but he thought his grandfather was probably on that side a very distinguished man. So it's kind of an interesting uh, background. Now, in terms of his sensibilities, we don't know a whole lot about her compared to Sarah Bush Johnson. But she apparently was a very loving mother. I mean, she provided the love to both Abraham Lincoln's sister and to Abraham. And um, he he grieved when he lost her. No question. But boy, what a Great stroke of good luck, but Thomas married well he was in a lot of ways, had a good sense to marry Sarah Bush Johnson.
1: I am just interested in the book where you found the information about the beating and about Ann Ludlage. Everything I've read about Ann Ludwig is just some people have kind of thought this through but really haven't kind of found any letters or anything pruding it.
0: Well, you do have, though, the, the oral testimony that people later wrote about, Joshua Speed, for example. William Herndon heard stories, and he he uh, wrote about uh, this. I think uh, Michael Burlingame's book, uh, and this was supposed to be four volumes, and it was such, such a huge project, Johns Hopkins Press was uh, publishing it, and Michael Burlingame and the editors decided to cut it down just to two volumes. Burlingame and other more recent historians, you're absolutely right. They're, We have to be somewhat agnostic about what we can know about the romance between Ann Rutledge and Abraham Lincoln. But the consensus seems to be, when you look at the depression, the severe bout of depression, and I hope you'll come back in two weeks, because Brian Flanagan, who will be speaking here two weeks, is that right, Brian? Uh,
1: I think so. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Brian has done a great deal of study about this question, and he he knows Lincoln's depression uh, very well, and um, you know, he'll be able to, I think, answer that question even better than I um, But uh, you, you make a good point, but the, the consensus, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the consensus among the best historians more recently, Ron White, Michael Burlingame, is that there was a depression that was probably precipitated by Ann Rulich's death. I read that yeah, exactly. I mean, the historian in me, and certainly the way I train students, is you better document if you don't want an F. And I don't want any flights of fancy here. Yeah. But you know what? It makes for a good story, doesn't it? Um, if you can't embellish the story in the second telling, why tell the story? Yeah? Um, yeah, the beatings are something that, um, again, come from neighbors, uh, their testimony. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of trouble understanding some of the things about lincoln uh, when you look at the testimony for example this law partner willie herman said that sometimes lincoln and mary would have abraham and mary would have such terrible fights that he would come to the law office and just put his head in his hands and weep for despair about this terrible marriage i had a tough tough time now how many people, apparently there were some neighbors that said that she did chase him with a knife out of the house. She did throw a rolling pin at him. I mean, apparently it was, she was very volatile and it was a very difficult marriage. Now, he would not, let's not just you know gang up on Mary here, he would not have been an easy man to live with. Not that he was himself a wife beater or a child beater or anything like that, but he probably didn't tend to, and he was gone for long periods of time, three months in the fall, three months in the spring. He was very absent-minded. He, you know, you'd find him going down, say, Jackson Street in Springfield outside the house, pulling a cart with kids, and the baby would fall out, and Lincoln would have a book and not even know that the baby had fallen out of the cart. You know, you'd go down in the neighborhood and say, uh, Abraham, Mr. Lincoln, your child's back there 50 feet. Um he, I'm sure he was a very frustrating husband. Uh, Mary, who was very ambitious for him, didn't think that he dressed properly inside the house. You know, he wouldn't have his nice coat on sometimes when guests would come to the door and she would scold him for answering the door. You know, dress so casually, you don't do that. Um, it, it, was a, it was a tough marriage in a lot of ways, but not because he was a perfect saint. He was somewhat neglectful. Did he marry really
1: her for love or for him?
0: Uh, I'm going to be very agnostic. I, I don't know. I think it's a combination of both. It's, it's by judgment. I think that he was attracted to her. That there's this one scene early in their courtship. I think it's the first night they meet where he is just spellbound by her. She's 5'2". She's he's 6'4". Um, <laughs> he would introduce her at parties. He would say, well, here's the long and the short of it. <laughs> she did not laugh. Um, This first night, I think, that they were courting, there's a scene that's painted where he was just sort of awestruck by her. She was very vivacious. She was a great conversationalist. For a woman at that time, remember, women did not have a lot of options at that time. They could not run for office. So they had to live through their men with politics. Mary was very savvy politically. Because her family knew Henry Clay and because Abraham Lincoln so admired Henry Clay, Lincoln was immediately drawn into her conversation about Henry Clay back in Lexington, Kentucky and thought, gosh, uh, I have found a woman who really understands my ambition. And she was vivacious and she was pretty. And um, there's every indication that initially, anyway, he was quite smitten with her, quite fascinated by her. Uh, they broke off their engagement, however. He was the one who did the breaking off. There was a period in which he did not think that he, they should marry. And he had to come to terms with that. It caused him grief they, that they... That, he had broken off a, an engagement with Mary Owens. So it us set the stage here. He lost Ann Rutledge, probably the love of his life, probably. Broke off the relationship with Anne Rutledge, uh, um, um, Mary Owens and then broke off a relationship with Mary Todd. Probably there's a little social pressure going on. Is this guy going to be marriageable, or is he going to be damaged goods? Does that answer your question? <laughs> it's very complicated. It's like all good, interesting lives are. Yes,
1: sir? You uh, know, I've read in the past, there's a lot of him saying that <coughs> she had sympathized with the South Civil War. Is there any proof that she did, or is it just because
0: she was from the South? Just because she was from Lexington, her family did own slaves, um, the, the proof would be circumstantial. She actually lost family members who fought for the South, and she grieved their deaths. But any sister would grieve the loss of a brother in the Civil War. I mean, that doesn't mean she's disloyal to the idea of the Union.
1: And during the Civil War, most families my people on both sides.
0: Yeah, we lost 626 thousand men on both sides I and mean, it has a lot of human carnage absolutely. So again I, I don't think, I think that's more the press and the perception, not the reality. Um, I think she tried to stay loyal because look Henry Clay was what a great compromiser. She was a fan of Clay's. Henry Clay's last great act what's the uh, compromise of 1850s to keep the union together to keep this sectional crisis from spinning out of control Henry Clay came to the rescue again and again and again well if you deduce that you know Mary Todd admired Henry Clay and you know that from evidence again and again and again and it's very safe to say therefore she was loyal to Lincoln's very Henry Clay vision of keeping the Union together.
1: Uh, yes, sir. Well, along those very same lines, as I recall in my readings, Lincoln is very specific about saying that his at all costs is to preserve the Union. Yes. He'll it do is. it with slaves, he'll do it without yes. slavery, he'll do it in partial slave states, he'll do it in whatever it takes to preserve the Union. So what is the transition here? Is this military or political or spiritual that he transcends into this mindset to say that we're gonna abolish slavery at the risk of the Union? That's, he needed a major victory and that victory
0: came at Antietam on September 17, 1862. That's when he could start thinking about making the Civil War a transcendent battle Uh, for a new interpretation of the Declaration of Independence and of the importance of freedom understood in equality. And freedom understood in the context of equality. The transition begins to happen, but as late, Alan Gelso, another great historian, I mentioned several great historians of Lincoln, we've had Alan Gelso come into the Hauenstein Center and speak, he mentions that Lincoln is late as December of 1862, we're talking about two weeks before the Emancipation Proclamation is going to be uh, at the force of legality, that Lincoln still entertained with somebody he was talking to the idea of of compensating the South for the slaves and sending the slaves over um, to Honduras or Liberia. Let's remember, Lincoln was not into the social equality of blacks and whites. He's, he did not see how blacks and whites could really live together. Um, he, I mean, it's really quite remarkable when you think about it, that he wanted to to pay off the southern slave owners and then get rid of the blacks and ask, send, them, send them away. The 13th amendment that he champions is the largest uncompensated transfer of wealth
1: Human history. Human history. And the emancipation is to the slaves. Yeah. Emancipation, proclamation just applies to very specific. To yes. What is, what he's doing here and what he's not. That's right. So I guess my question is, for all the uh, for, for all the uh, explanation, if you will, the uh, Gettysburg Address, there seems to be all these various other motives if you want to call them. I'm sorry? I mean other motives. Oh, I mean yes. it, can be, it can be religious if you will, but he's more enlightened now. It's going to be about personal property and mm-hmm. who's going to be compensated for it. He's got the advantage at he's enough so he's going to push it politically. And as you mentioned earlier, he's got to broaden this thing because it's turned out to be maybe more than they thought it was going to be in terms of that, the expense, and time. So it's, there's a lot of Do you have
0: any formal training in history, sir? No. Yeah. You think like an historian. Historians are trained to think of multiple motives, multiple causes, never to be monocausal. And you have just done a wonderful explication of all of the different motives that would go into a document like the Gettysburg Address. And you're absolutely right. Of course there are political motives. He's a, Lincoln is a political animal. And he's not just this... Highfalutin statesman. He's also thinking about the Republican Party, the new Republican Party, and making sure it gets ensconced in national politics to further the ideals. This is a man who had very strong ideas of where the country ought to go. And we know that from the Homestead Act, the Morrill Act, we know the Transcontinental Railroad, all the acts that he supported. Why did he do this? Because he had this economic vision of the United States of what this country would become. I give another speech about Lincoln in which I talk just about the economic vision and say your lives today, the reason you have all the things you have today, Lincoln visualized and was able to push through the kinds of legislation that would make this a continental wide market. This is precisely what the Europeans were doing in Germany when they were getting rid of the Zollverein and these other you know, barriers within Germany. Germany and France, and finally all of these countries in Europe are trying to become, on the eve of World War I, one great big market. Abraham Lincoln had the vision for what this continent would become. So there's the economic motive, the political motive. It's also been suggested, and I thought you were also going in this direction, that Lincoln's depression, you know, so many people, he didn't have, uh, what are these depression medications, Uh, Zoloft and things like that? He didn't have Zoloft. What did people do in those days? They had drink a lot of them. Abraham Lincoln was a teetower, so you take off alcohol from the agenda to deal with your depression. He sublimated it. He found a way to take that energy and say, I am going to do so. I have a terrible marriage, I have a lot of strife. I've had many frustrations in my life, I'm losing children, my sons. Uh, I lost my mom, all this kind of stuff. He, rather than give up and die, spiritually, morally, career-wise, he finds a cause for this country, and that's why he pursues it with such vigor. His life depends on it, in a sense, in the same way that Theodore Roosevelt tells us that his life depends on pursuing the vigorous life in the White House. Because Theodore Roosevelt was also prone to depression. After his wife and his mom died on the same day in 1884, on Valentine's Day, in the same house of different diseases, one from the childbirth and the other from a different disease. Little Alice is born. Theodore Roosevelt goes to the Dakotas to become a cowboy. He says later, if I did not go to the Dakotas to become a cowboy, I would have died. I would have died. And Roosevelt uses a metaphor of the horse. He says, "Black care pursues me. I have to ride that horse with my Gets the horse. Stay. of the depression that would overtake me. These people, and he hates before Zoloft, find a way to deal with their personal depression and this crisis and become energized in adopting this great cause and sublimating. This is how Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill had what he called his black dog. A lot of these great men, these powerful testosterone-loaded Men, great leaders, had terrible battles with depression. It's quite a human condition. It's like it was the mind's way of forcing them to try to get off that high energy level every once in a while and hibernate just a little bit. the more fascinating it is and look i was very i think rigorously trained as an historian not to go too far out on a limb you cannot psychoanalyze somebody who's dead you know you got to be really careful i'm a very conservative historian in that sense however as psychologists go back and look at the biographies and new documents are discovered and more testimony comes to light about the lives of these people i do welcome the observations of people who say, well, it suggests that this person is fighting depression here or has some kind of anxiety disorder. I mean, we are obligated to try to find answers to what drives certain people to do the things they do when you look, as I've tried to say in this talk, of the obstacles that are overcome. And I'm, oh, I, the obstacle that you have to overcome is getting past me to get back home. I don't want to go on too long. Well,
1: you know. that he had, can you just imagine what might have happening? If he hadn't had all these bad things, my gosh, that would have been a bit of a mind
0: Well, or on the other hand, maybe because of the suffering. I, one of the, Brian and I, um, we've developed a leadership academy in the Hallenstein Center, and one of the things that I try to point out Groups of people, uh, talk to a lot of different groups of, of people who are interested in leadership. And I think I surprise them a little bit when I, I tell every group that great leaders had to have been broken at some point in their lives. They have to be broken to reassemble them, they have to have been tested and gotten through the test. If they're not broken by depression, grief, a career failure, some awful personal failure, maybe. If they're not broken, they don't know how strong they are to come back. They often will lack compassion for others who are going through similar problems. Leaders have to be really smart in dealing with other people. Leaders have to show, at a personal level, a lot of compassion for others who are going to have failures. Now, they can look like hard asses and they can be tough as nails, but let me tell you something. The leaders I've been around, close range, as close as you and I are, ma'am, You get into a room with them, and it's just the two of you talking. These leaders drop that very strong facade, and you can talk to them as human beings, and they understand something about the human condition. And it's because somewhere in their lives, they were broken. And they are better for it for having come back. Now understanding how fragile we are. The human condition in some ways is very fragile. And yet to find that strength out of that fragility. Um, I emphasize this to students, uh, to teenagers who think they're invincible and they've not suffered yet. You know, they just, they have the helicopter parents and they're just soaring, you know, they're doing, they're doing great. And I say, just, I don't expect you to believe me now. Just keep these words in mind. Something is going to break you in the next 10 20 years. Pay attention to it. It doesn't mean the end of you. It means you put yourself back together stronger and you'll be
1: a better reader for it. Lisa. Thank you.